This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello and welcome once again to the programme. In the introduction to his commentary to Namkar Pal's Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, the text we are following in these programmes, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says this, Some people have a very coarse and rough attitude, so that even their parents and friends want to be apart from them. But we can develop a kind and warm heart, and then gradually we will see day by day that our good qualities increase and our ability to bring happiness to others increases also. And, of course, we ourselves will be happier. If we are good and kind people, then all the things that we need in life will come to us. We will eventually be able to gain all the good qualities and things that we need, both on the ultimate level and the relative level. If we are very coarse and rough people and always act in a mean way, then we will never get any of the things that we wish for. As with physical training, to develop new different attitudes, we need to do various exercises to train our minds and hearts, day by day and month by month, over a long period of time with sustained effort. A good heart and a good mind don't come just by wishing for them, but from training and building them up. The teachings of the Buddha do not accept a creator. They say that everything dependently arises. So whatever happens comes about in a rational and orderly manner by means of cause and effect. It's not that there is some creator that just wills things to happen. Everything comes about by causes and circumstances, and if we try to identify the causes, we would have to say that things come from karma. Karma, in turn, comes about in terms of various people's minds and the various things that they do, particularly how they benefit or harm others. The root of all this is whether our minds are tamed or not. If they are untamed, we commit various destructive actions, and in keeping with those destructive actions, disasters, unhappiness and so forth come about. If our minds are well tamed, then these things won't happen. So if misfortunes occur, we can't point our fingers at the Buddha, nor can we put the blame on somebody else. Similarly, we can't say that our happiness came from someone else. All these things arise depending on whether our minds are tamed. When our minds are tamed, we engage in constructive actions, build up positive force, that's merit, and happiness comes as a result of that. If we want to get rid of our problems, of our sufferings, then we have to work on our attitudes and tame our minds well. Similarly, happiness and the absence of problems and suffering aren't going to come from just praying to the Buddha to give them to us. They come from our own efforts in terms of whether we have cleansed our minds of negative attitudes and trained them to have positive ones. In other words, it all depends on whether or not our minds are tamed. If we want happiness, we have to tame our minds. If we want to get rid of problems, we have to tame our minds. So the main point when considering how to bring about happiness and get rid of problems and suffering is whether or not we train and purify our minds. So we don't explain that there is some God who gives us happiness through his blessings and grace, but rather that the power of individual people and the power of the Buddha are equal. Although we can gain inspiration from the Buddhas, 
the basic thing we have to do is tame our minds. This is why we have this type of teaching, of attitude training. Everybody has to work on their own minds, work on their own hearts, on their own attitudes. This is what will bring about happiness. That is His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and that's why it's good to investigate texts, like mind training like the rays of the sun. If we don't engage in such investigation, how will we know what to do to control our minds, even if we do know that our minds are the source of all our problems? It is one thing knowing we have a problem, but quite another knowing how to solve it. Texts like mind, mind training like the sun give us the opportunity to discover the means to go about taking control of our minds. Of course, whether we inspire to use those means or to go searching further for other means is up to us. Now, if you don't think training the mind in positive attitudes is going to help you, then you are quite at liberty to go looking elsewhere to find long-term happiness. However, from a Buddhist point of view, much of what is taught in texts like this is invaluable in transforming the mind from being something willful and intemperate like a spoiled child to something wise and always at peace, no matter what the circumstances. So we see what Nam Karpel has to say about this transformation. But now, before we continue with the text, let's consider our motivation as we usually do. This looking at motivation is also part of training the mind, because it is motivation that determines whether an action brings benefit and happiness or not in the long term. Even if an action appears to have an unwanted result in the short term, if the intention behind it is pure, in the long term it will have a happy result. So let's examine our motivation for joining the program today and set a vast motivation like gaining enlightenment to benefit countless beings, just as the Buddha did. Then this program can become a powerful force for good. Thank you. If you have been with us for previous programs, you will know that in the text we have reached the chapter on cultivating the mind of Bodhicitta, the wish to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. This culminates in a description of how to practice Tonglen, taking on suffering and giving out happiness, and following on that, we are given instructions on five precepts to observe in the mind training. These are 1. Taking adverse circumstances into the path of enlightenment. 2. The integrated practice of a single lifetime. 3. The measures of having trained the mind. 4. The commitments of mind training. and 5. The precepts of mind training. Taking adverse circumstances into the path means basically that we use whatever circumstances we meet in life to further our spiritual journey. We cannot only choose those that appear comfortable while avoiding anything that brings discomfort. Nam Kapel says we should take lightly every mental or physical difficulty that befalls us. He advises that when we encounter difficulties, sicknesses and so on, we willingly take them on with the thought that we are also taking on all such difficulties from other beings who are similarly suffering. We also pray as ardently as possible that all those beings are happy and free from all suffering. We can also be happy that going through these difficulties, we are eliminating our neg negative karma so that we will never have to experience it again. And when we experience good circumstances, 
we recognize that they were caused by positive karma we created, and if we want to have such good circumstances again in the future, we have to create the causes once again. So, we follow pure ethics, develop loving kindness and patience towards all others, and do whatever we can to train the mind to be positive in all circumstances. This section of the text also talks of the four practices that accompany the determination to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings, that is the mind of bodhicitta. Remember, the practices are to accumulate merit or positive potential, purify negativities, make offerings to harmful spirits, and make offerings and request help from Dharma protectors. And we've covered all of these in previous programs. Now mind training like the rays of the sun goes on to the second of the instructions we mentioned before, the integrated practice of a lifetime. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says this instruction condenses the practice into one for this whole lifetime we are living. And this is how Nam Karpel opens this section. The text says, train in the five powers. Yeah, the text he's talking about is the seven points of mind training, which he's commenting on. He goes on to comment on the five powers, the first of which is the power of intention. He says, we must set a strong determination, thinking, I shall not let the primary or secondary disturbing emotions, which arise from the misconception of self, dominate my activities of body and speech, even for a moment, from now until I attain enlightenment, or at any time in this life until I die, this year, this month, and today in particular. Similarly, make a strong resolve, thinking, I will become familiar with and never be separated from the awakening mind until I have attained the highest enlightenment, and so forth, and today in particular I shall not be parted from it. The King of Meditative Stabilization Sutra says, The more a human being analyzes something, because the force of his thought is focused on it, his mind dwells on it more strongly. Now that's Nam Karpel. And to this, His Holiness comments with the following, The first force is the intention that we throw ahead of us. We wish, may I always be able to develop a bodhicitta aim. May I always be able to practice attitude training. May I always be able to develop the good qualities that will truly enable me to benefit all others. Throwing ahead the force of our intention is like making a preparation to fulfill these wishes. So we throw ahead the intention, I am going to develop in this good direction. Now that I have this opportunity to practice these vast vehicle Mahayana practices, I am going to apply all my force and all my active energies in this direction. To do this every day, in the morning we say as we wake up, Today it's so fortunate that I've woken up. I'm alive. I have a precious human life. I'm not going to waste it, but will use all the energies of this precious life today to develop a bodhicitta aim to achieve enlightenment in order to benefit others as much as possible. So I'm going to have kind thoughts towards all others. I'm not going to be angry or have bad thoughts. As much as I can, I will use all my energies to help others, to be of benefit to others. His Holiness goes on, It is very important to have this very practical setting of our intention in the morning. Likewise, at night, we can examine our actions. What have I done today? What type of person have I been today? Did I help others 
Or did I just use others for my own selfish purposes? Did I get angry? Did I develop attachment? We need to examine our day honestly as to how we actually behaved and what type of attitudes we developed during the day. If we find that during the day we in fact were a kind and warm person, we can rejoice in that, feeling happy and encouraged. But if we acted in a very disturbing manner, we need to feel real real regret about that, admit we did wrongly and set a very strong intention. Tomorrow I'm not going to act again in such a negative manner. If we do this every day, we will gradually improve and learn to sustain it by resolving to act well for the next day, month and year. We can also build ourselves up, for instance, by coming to teachings like these. A strong intention can be set by thinking, now I'm going to listen to the teachings on attitude training and I'm going to put them into practice as much as I can. And that's His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And perhaps we can follow that advice from him and add it to our motivation at the beginning of each program as well. In the meantime, on the Huffington Post, Sogni Rinpoche has a blog that goes further on this theme. It is titled, The Meaning of Virtue and Virtuosity, and it goes like this. The Buddhist path is often described in terms of steps one takes to lead what is commonly referred to as a virtuous life, an idea that strikes a chord of anxiety into the hearts of people new to Buddhism, and quite a few long-term practitioners. The meaning of virtue has been debated and defined in various ways by different schools of Buddhism, as well as other religious and philosophical traditions over the centuries. There are many stories, for example, about Buddhist monastics, who, in the centuries following the Buddha's passing, took exceptional precautions to avoid stepping on insects or the possibility of inhaling them. So it's quite natural that people might wonder what virtue means in the context of modern life with its abundance of choices and challenges. At various times, people have asked, do I have to become a vegetarian? Do I have to give up sex, alcohol or good food? Do I have to stop watching TV? Do I have to stop going out with my friends? Now, of course, there's a lot to be said for living simply. Fewer distractions allow us more time to devote to examining our lives and the effects of our thoughts, feelings and behavior, not only on our own lives, but on the lives of all the people with whom we come into contact. But that is only one aspect of a manner of living that might be described as virtuous. In a broader sense, virtue or virtuous living, as I understand it, comes very close to the Hippocratic Oath the doctors take. First, do no harm. The earliest and most persistent descriptions of virtue in the Buddhist teachings involve avoiding activities that cause harm to others, including killing, theft, sexual abuse, lying, slander and gossip. Interestingly enough, they also include activities that may harm oneself, such as overindulging in intoxicants, food and certain types of habitual activity. Understandings that evolved long before terms like addiction or obesity were defined by modern medicine. But the Tibetan word gewa, which is often translated as virtue, has a deeper, more significant meaning. Like the old Middle English word virtu, which was related to the effectiveness of a herb or other plant to strengthen certain qualities inherent in the body and mind, gewa means making choices that extend our emotional and intellectual strength 
illuminate our potential greatness, build our confidence and enhance our ability to assist those in help of need. A third and final understanding of virtue, which has evolved from conversations with a few friends and students around the world, builds on this aspect of developing or cultivating our strengths. Artists who exhibit extraordinary skill in their respective fields are known as virtuosos, an English word that comes from an Italian term signifying someone who demonstrates exceptional skill. Virtuoso may not have been a common term in the language the Buddha spoke, or in the languages in which his teachings were passed down orally from teacher to student for several hundred years until they were finally written down. However, everything I've learned from my own studies, the teachings I've received, and my own experience as a teacher, counselor, husband and father, suggest to me that what the Buddha discovered during the days and nights he spent meditating under a tree in Bodhgaya, India, was a method through which we can all become virtuosos in the art of living. Each of us is gifted with the ability to recognize within ourselves an astonishing capacity for brilliance, kindness, generosity and courage. We also have the potential to awaken everyone with whom we come in contact to the possibility of greatness. We become virtuosos to the extent that we develop our potential to the point at which, even without our conscious intention, our actions and our words serve to awaken the human artist in everyone. But in order to do that, we have to understand the basic material with which we're working. A skillful potter has to learn to recognize the qualities and characteristics of a lump of clay with which he or she works. A virtuoso farmer has to understand the relationship between soil and seeds, fertilizer and water, and implement that understanding in terms of actions. Likewise, in order to become virtuoso human beings, we have to begin by understanding our basic nature, the clay, so to speak, with which we are given to work. And that, to me, is the essence of the Buddha's teachings. It is within our power to become virtuoso humans. The process involves a step-by-step examination of the ways in which we relate to ourselves and the world around us. As we integrate this examination into our daily lives, we begin to realize the possibility of living each moment of our lives with a previously unimagined richness and delight. This approach, advanced 2,500 years ago, asks us to look at who we are in terms beyond the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, about others, and about the world around us. So, let's begin to practice virtuosity in our own lives. Let's ask questions of ourselves. Who are we? What are we? How can we learn not just to survive, but to thrive in the midst of the challenges we face moment by moment, day by day, year by year? The answers may surprise and possibly even delight us. With such examination of our lives and continuously setting positive intentions, we then practice the second of the five powers, the power of the white seed, which Nam Karpel describes like this. We need to preserve the merits and insights arising from generosity, ethics and meditation, which cause us to generate, maintain and enhance the precious awakening mind. His Holiness the Dalai Lama comments, The second is the force of the white seed, which we create with this prayer. May I achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. This reaffirms our dedication 
to our own enlightenment and to that of all others. Tsogni Rinpoche also has a blog on Huffington Post that bears on this. It is titled, Practicing Perfection, and here it is. He says, People practice meditation for all sorts of reasons. To feel calm, to experience a bit more clarity, to cut through personal confusion, to deal with physical, emotional or mental pain. And these are all legitimate reasons. And certain practices, if carried out regularly, can affect changes in our experience as well as our physiology. Neuroscientists, for example, have been able to measure changes in brain activity as a result of regular sustained meditation practice. Yet, according to the Buddhist tradition, we can't experience the really profound transformative effects of meditation if our practice isn't grounded in an ethical or moral ground. Without such a ground, meditation is little more than a kind of mental calisthenics. We may experience a bit more peace, a bit more stability, but true contentment, true joy and true confidence will elude us. That ground is the motivation to attain freedom from suffering in order to help all other beings to attain the same freedom. This motivation is commonly referred to as aspiration bodhicitta, a Sanskrit term that can be translated in a variety of ways, including the mind of awakening. And the effects of our practice will be greatly enhanced if we recall this motivation at the beginning and the end of each session. Our practice will become even more profound and our lives will transform even more deeply and dramatically if we take the next step and practice application bodhicitta. That is, if we actually conduct ourselves in post-meditation in a manner that conforms to and reinforces that motivation. Doing so involves the application of what is known in Sanskrit as paramita and in Tibetan as paraltachumba. Both terms are often translated as perfections in the sense that they are the most compassionate and intelligent qualities we can cultivate in our daily conduct. A more literal translation means going beyond or crossing to the other shore, that other shore being the experience of complete freedom from suffering that lies beyond any limitations of self and other, subject and object. Most classical Buddhist texts encourage us to practice six parameters. The first, which is many ways the foundation of all the others, is generosity, which is traditionally divided into three different types. The first type of generosity is fairly easy to understand. It involves giving material assistance, like food or money. There's an old Buddhist story that in one of his earlier incarnations, the Buddha gave up his body to a starving tigress who couldn't feed her cubs. He willingly let himself be eaten so that the tigress and her cubs could live. I'm fairly certain that if the story is true, the experience must have been rather unpleasant. But whether true or not, it remains as an example of the type of willingness to endure personal hardship on behalf of others. I imagine few of us today are asked by starving tigresses to give up their bodies. But in my estimation, it's a great object lesson in terms of the lengths to which we can go in order to provide food for people who are starving. All around the world, thousands of people gather in lines to accept charitable donations of breakfast and lunch for themselves and their children. Hungry tigers and tigresses who only want to help their cubs survive. I was taught that the first kind of generosity 
could extend beyond material assistance to giving emotional sustenance. Sometimes this means offering comfort or encouragement to someone who's having a difficult day, a difficult week, month, or, as many people across the globe have experienced, a difficult year, a difficult decade, a difficult life. The second type of generosity involves offering protection to those whose lives are threatened in some way. There are many individuals who engage in this kind of activity, offering assistance to people who are about to lose their homes, their cars, even their children. They offer drug and alcohol addicts the opportunity to enter rehabilitation facilities, to detoxify from the poisons in their systems, and in some cases, learn skills that will help them to acquire jobs. Shelters that protect women and children who have been abused in various ways offer a kind and caring environment that provides a basis for these women and children to overcome their fears and their histories of abuse. The final aspect of generosity involves offering understanding. Usually, this involves giving a Dharma teaching, such as the type given to large groups of students by the great masters of the Buddhist tradition. Generosity in teaching can also be passed down a little bit more casually. For instance, one student who began working for a large international corporation was disturbed by the volatile reactions of her boss. Don't take it personally, her co-worker told her. He's afraid of losing his job, and he can't help but pass that fear to you. Whatever he says, though, whatever he does, has nothing to do with you. Give the guy some love. He's wicked scared. That's what we do, isn't it? We tend to take everything personally and get terribly upset when we feel others have attacked or criticized us in some way. But most of the time, if we could see into the history of the other person and the situation, we would discover that it is not at all personal. We just happened to be in the way when the other person needed a hissy fit. So we copped it. I remember the last job I was in, the newly appointed boss acted like a huffing, puffing, full of himself autocrat who once declared at a staff meeting that workers should regard him as God. You can imagine how that went down. Once he came into my workplace, where a window was open while the air conditioning was going. As I was sitting nearest to the window, he went off at me about air conditioning the outside, although I had nothing to do with either opening the window or, to, or turning on the air conditioning. In fact, busy with my work, I hadn't noticed either. After he had become considerably more red in the face and had stormed out, one of my co-workers remarked about how calm I'd remained. Oh, that wasn't about me, the air conditioning or the open window, I told her. He's got much more on his mind and was only letting off steam. Later on, when he became more used to the job, he did quieten down a bit. Anyway, let's end the program today with Sogni Rinpoche's final comment. He says, So let's challenge ourselves to kick our practice to a higher level by practicing generosity in our lives. How often and how far can we go out of our way each day? How does practicing generosity affect our own sense of well-being? How does it affect the environments in which we function? How does it influence our meditation practice? And what's with that secret smile we start to catch now and then when we look in the mirror? Well, I hope that secret smile is always with you. Thanks for joining the program today, and I look forward to us being together next week, if karma allows. Please dedicate all the positive potential from today's program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. 
For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.